During this Advent season, we are exploring the gospel message that is contained in some of our favorite carols. We began with Joy to the World and What Child Is This? And today we turn to Hark the Herald Angels Sing, which our children and youth choirs just performed for us. Now, this carol was the product of the first Great Awakening, and it shows. This is one of the most theologically rich carols that you could ever sing. It was first written in 1739 by Charles Wesley. Now, Charles Wesley worked very closely with his brother John. John Wesley was a distinguished theologian, but Charles took some of the penetrating insights into the heart of the gospel that, that John expounded and put them to song. So Charles Wesley wrote over 6,000 hymns during the course of his lifetime, and this very well may be one of the best. Now here's the story. Charles Wesley was walking to church on Christmas Day, and he heard the sound of London church bells ringing, and it inspired him to write a poem. And he intended for this poem to be read every year on Christmas Day. Now, originally, the first line of this poem was, Hark, listen, hark, how all the welkin rings. Now, welkin was an old way of referring to heaven. So as he hears the sound of the bells, which we can hear right now, he was inspired to write, Hark, how all of heaven rings. And I wonder... Maybe one of you will be inspired by the sound of our bells and write a hymn one day. But 20 years later, after writing the original poem, a very well-known preacher named George Whitfield, who might have been one of the most prominent preachers in the 18th century, adapted that opening line to what we now sing, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And then 100 years later or so, this poem was set to the tune written by Felix Mendelssohn that has become so familiar to us all. But I've said over the last couple of weeks that the power of these carols lies in the fact that the, the whole gospel is contained within them. And this carol is a perfect example of that. Hark the Herald Angels Sings tells us about everything Jesus has accomplished for us, not only through his birth, but also through his death and his resurrection. You may not have realized that before, but it, it's, it's all right here. So during our time together, let's look at what the carol tells us about what Jesus has accomplished for us through his birth, which is revealed in the second stanza, what he has accomplished for us through his death, which is revealed in the first stanza, and then thirdly, what he has accomplished for us through his resurrection, which is revealed in the third stanza. But first, let me invite you to open up a Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, which you'll find printed in your pew Bible on page 90, uh, 966. It's also printed in your order of worship. I'll be reading 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 17 through 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. 
We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. This is God's word. It's trustworthy and it's true, and it's given to us in love. Would you please pray with me? Father, we acknowledge that apart from you, these words would remain nothing more than letters on a page. And so we pray by your grace that the same spirit that once inspired these words might illuminate them now for us so that your word might catch fire and burn within our hearts, leading us to a living encounter with Jesus. And it is in his strong and powerful name that we pray. Amen. Well, first I'd like us to consider how Hark the Herald Angels Sing tells us everything that Jesus has accomplished for us through his birth. But I want to begin with a little history. Some of you may know that this building was originally the home for what was known as Park Avenue Baptist Church. This building was originally constructed in 1922 with funding principally provided by John D. Rockefeller Jr. Now in that same year, 1922, there was a well-known pastor here in New York by the name of Harry Emerson Fosdick who preached a now infamous sermon at First Presbyterian Church on West 12th Street in which he denied the virgin birth of Jesus, the inspiration of scripture, the reality of miracles, the substitutionary atonement of Christ on the cross, and the promised return of Jesus at the end of time. All in one sermon, he denied all those core tenets of the Christian faith, all in one sermon. So as you can imagine, that one sermon got him into a whole heap of trouble, and he had to leave First Presbyterian Church. But Rockefeller, being somewhat of a modernist in his theology, loved Fosdick. He was a big fan. He thought Fosdick was terrific, so he invited him to come to this building to be the second pastor of Park Avenue Baptist. Well, people were attracted to Fosdick, so he packed the place out. Eventually, the congregation outgrew the space, so Rockefeller decided to build Riverside Church for Fosdick up by Columbia University, and the Baptist congregation moved up to Morningside Heights, and Central, which had been in existence for about 100 years prior to this, took ownership of the building and moved in in 1929, right before the stock market crash. Now, Central remained strong and vibrant as a community of faith in Jesus for a number of decades, but then beginning in the 1960s, took a nosedive because the church drifted significantly in its theology, and it suffered under very, very poor financial mismanagement. So much so that the church dwindled down to next to nothing and came within the brink of collapse. But beginning in the mid-2000s, thanks to the enterprising efforts of a number of people who lived in the neighborhood, we witnessed God bring this old church bursting back to new life, first under the leadership of a man named Howard Eddington. Now, why do I share all this? Well, for many years, Harry Emerson Fosdick preached from this very pulpit before he went up to Riverside. And we even have a photograph of him standing here in this pulpit. And so I enjoy standing in this pulpit and affirming all those things that Fosdick had once denied. Fosdick was once asked, well, what is it that you actually believe? And he said, well, I do not believe in the virgin birth 
or in that old-fashioned doctrine of the atonement, and I know of no intelligent person who does. Well, those are fighting words. So when Howard Eddington showed up in 2008 to take over the leadership of this church, one of his first sermons was delivered during Advent. So what do you think the title of his sermon was? Fosdick had once said, I don't believe in the virgin birth and I know of no intelligent person who does. So Howard's sermon was, I believe in the virgin birth. Oh, do I ever. And that was the beginning of Central's turnaround. And here we are now, 15 years later. But Charles Wesley also believed in the virgin birth, or perhaps more accurately, we should call it the virgin conception of Jesus. And that's why Wesley writes in this second stanza, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord, late in time behold him come, offspring of a virgin's womb. Now there Wesley is alluding to Galatians chapter 4 verse 4 where the apostle Paul writes, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order to redeem those under the law. But I want to show you something interesting, and this doesn't always come through in our modern translations. You have to read it in the ancient Greek or at least in the King James Version. But you see, within this chapter, Galatians chapter 4, Paul uses the Greek word for born four different times. But when he speaks of Jesus' coming into the world, he doesn't actually use that same word. He doesn't use the word born, but rather he uses the word made or, or came into being. So the way in which Galatians 4 verse 4 literally reads is when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son made of a woman, made under the law in order to redeem those under the law. In other words, Paul was being very careful with his word choice and pointing to the fact that the way in which Jesus came into the world was unusual. And the consistent message of the entire New Testament is that Jesus did not come into the world in the ordinary way. There are two narratives of Jesus' birth contained in the Gospels. One is found in the Gospel of Luke, and the other is found in the Gospel of Matthew. And all of the commentators agree that there are slight differences between those two birth narratives. And why is that? Well, it's because Luke tells the story of Jesus' birth from the perspective of Mary, whereas Matthew tells the story of Jesus' birth from the perspective of Joseph. So Mary is confused and puzzled when she's informed that she will bear God's son. And why is she puzzled and confused? Well, because she knows where babies come from. And she knows that she has not been with a man. And likewise, Joseph is perplexed when he finds out that his wife is pregnant because he knows that he's not the father. And he would have quietly divorced Mary so as not to publicly shame her unless God intervened because he knew that he had nothing to do with this child's conception. Now, what's so fascinating to me about that is that 
Here we have two different accounts of the birth of Jesus told from two different points of view, that of Mary and of Joseph, and yet both Gospels affirm the virgin birth or the virgin conception of Jesus, that Mary conceives a child because the Holy Spirit overshadows her. Now the problem, of course, from the beginning of the church right on down to the present is that we have a hard time accepting the virgin conception of Jesus because we know where babies come from. And I think one of the reasons why it's hard for us to accept is we assume that people in the ancient world must have been more gullible. They must have been more credulous. They were more susceptible to this sort of thing because they were more open to the possibility of miracles or the supernatural. But as modern people, we cannot accept the virgin birth or the virgin conception of Jesus. Because why? Because we know a virgin conception is a scientific impossibility. We know that the virgin birth must be a scientific impossibility. But what I want you to realize is that Mary and Joseph knew that a virgin conception was also a scientific impossibility. They would have said the exact same thing. So the Oxford professor C.S. Lewis once wrote this. He said, you will hear people say, the early Christians believed that Christ was the son of a virgin, but we know that this is a scientific impossibility. Such people who say that seem to have an idea that belief in miracles arose at a period when people were so ignorant of the cause of nature that they did not perceive a miracle to be contrary to nature. But a moment's thought shows this to be nonsense, and the story of the virgin birth is a especially striking example. When St. Joseph discovered that his fiancée was going to have a baby, he not unnaturally decided to repudiate her. Why? Because he knew, just as well as any modern gynecologist, that in the ordinary course of nature, women do not have babies unless they have lain with men. No doubt the modern gynecologist knows several things about birth and begetting, which St. Joseph did not know. But those things do not concern the main point, that a virgin birth is contrary to the course of nature. And St. Joseph obviously knew that. In any sense, in which it is true to say now, the thing is scientifically impossible, he would have said the same thing. See, it's just as hard for us as it was for the earliest Christians to accept the virgin conception of Jesus. But this is what we are being told consistently, not only in the Gospels, but throughout the entire New Testament. And so here's the real question. If Jesus really is the Son of God, and if he was not born but made of a woman, then what difference does it make? And what that tells us is that God really has come to us in the person of Jesus. And that's why Wesley writes, Veiled in flesh the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity. Pleased as man with man to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. You see, if God really has entered our world in this unusual way, then it means that though he is veiled in human flesh, we can see the Godhead in him. And that means that Jesus truly is Emmanuel, God with us. God has come among us 
as one of us. But why has he come? And that brings me to my second point. What does this carol tell us about what Jesus has accomplished for us through his death? And Wesley answers that question in the very first stanza. But he does it in an intriguing way. He alludes now to Luke chapter 2, verse 14, where the angels herald the news of Jesus' birth. They say, glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is well pleased. But when the angels announce peace, what kind of a peace are they talking about? Well, the peace that they announce is not mere inner serenity, but rather this peace represents the end of hostility. The peace that God brings to earth is not serenity, but the end of hostility. And that is why the angel goes on to sing in Wesley's words, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. So you see here that the carol doesn't just highlight Jesus' birth, but it also skips ahead and tells us what Jesus will eventually accomplish through his death. And what is that? Well, in a word, it's reconciliation. God and sinners reconciled. And that, of course, is the great theme of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 18 and 19 state, All of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Now, the word reconciliation implies that there was once a healthy relationship, but now there's been a rupture. That relationship has been broken down. And the breakdown in that relationship could evidence itself in open hostility or perhaps cold indifference. But either way, there's a simmering enmity in a broken relationship. And that enmity, that hostility, has to be overcome in order for the relationship to be restored. So how do we make this more concrete? Let me make this tangible for us. Look, we all have broken relationships in our lives. And so I want you to stop and think, which relationships in your life are fractured? Perhaps with a spouse, a relative, a friend, a colleague, a neighbor, and if you've got a broken relationship, how does it often evidence itself? Well, either in open hostility or perhaps cold indifference. For some, you might say you can't bear to be in the same room as this other person because when you're together, you know it's just a matter of time before things boil over. And it will result in an aggressive argument or a fight. But then there's others who are not openly hostile towards one another. They're passively indifferent. And it may be that you just don't want anything to do with that other person because you just don't care. You don't care about them. And that's interesting because most people think that the opposite of love is hate. But no, the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. So as you consider your own broken relationships, that may be in part what makes you a little bit worried or a little bit anxious about celebrating Christmas this year. 
because perhaps you know that you're going to have to deal with this dynamic and you're worried about what the next fight is going to be about or you just don't want to see that other person because you're no longer on speaking terms. Now, I'm sure to one degree or another, we can all picture relationships in our lives that have been broken and fractured, but whatever those relationships might be, I want you to use them now as an analogy to help you understand what the rifts between you and God might be all about. See, some people know that they're angry with God. The relationship is marked by open hostility. Maybe life hasn't turned out the way that you had planned. You've lost something or someone that was important or close to you, or you failed to obtain or to achieve something that you desperately wanted, and you blame God for it. So you're angry with God, and you know that you're angry with God, but other people may fail to realize that the relationship with God is ruptured because you just don't care. You would never give God any thought. You're completely indifferent towards him. You never think about him. But you see, that is a problem too. Imagine this analogous situation. Let's say you're sharing an apartment with a friend or a roommate or a spouse or a child. And even though you're sharing the same space, you never talk to one another. You avoid one another. You ignore one another's presence. You give each other the silent treatment. Well, in that case... Silence would be unnerving. Silence would not be a sign of tranquility. No, silence would be a sign of hostility. So do you see that in all of our relationships, whether openly hostile or passively indifferent, they, they reflect something about the way in which our relationship with God can also be ruptured. Some of us know we're angry with God. Some people may not realize that we are failing to give him any attention even though we share the same space in this world that he has made. So what do we do about all this? Well, in our human relationships, sometimes, not all the time, but sometimes one person really is responsible for the rift between you. But more often than not, it's a mixed bag. We've all done our part to mess things up. But even if, let's say, the other person is 99% responsible for the rupture, and you're only responsible for 1% because of how you might have reacted or responded to something they did or what they said. Let's say you're only responsible for 1%. Well, in order for the relationship to be repaired, the first step is for you to own, for you to take responsibility for your 1%. That's the only way that the relationship could ever be repaired. But in our relationship with God, here's the unique aspect to it. We are... 100% responsible. And that's what the Bible means by the word sin. Sin means that we're 100% responsible for the breakdown in our relationship with God because of the ways in which we have offended God through either our open hostility or our passive indifference towards him. So we're 100% responsible, and yet here is the wonder of the gospel. Though, we're, though we are 100% responsible for the rift, God takes... 100% of the blame. God takes 100% of the blame upon himself so that our relationship with him might be restored. There is nothing like this in the world. 
This is what makes the gospel unique. Fosdick said that he didn't believe in the virgin birth, but the second thing he said he didn't believe in was that old-fashioned doctrine of atonement. But this is what reconciliation means. Reconciliation means that you experience atonement at one mint. Even though you had been previously estranged and alienated in your relationship with God, you are now at one. But how does that happen? How does that work? Well, the British pastor, John Stott, sums it all up for us in terms of 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And he tells us that this chapter in Paul's letter tells us that God is the author of reconciliation, Christ is the agent of reconciliation, and we are not only the recipients, but we are the ambassadors of reconciliation. See, first of all, God is the author. Verse 18, all of this is from God. All of this is the result of God's initiative and grace. God is the author and source of it all. There's eight verbs used in this short little paragraph in which God is the subject. God is the one who reconciles. God is the one who gives. God appeals. God is the one who makes him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. We have nothing to offer and nothing to give in this act of reconciliation. It's all God from beginning to end. In the memorable words of William Temple, the only thing that we contribute to our redemption is the sin from which we need to be redeemed. So number one, God is the author. Number two, Christ is the agent of reconciliation. All this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself. That is in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. And then the key verse in verse 21, for our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In other words, Jesus, the truly innocent one, became sin with our sins so that we, the truly guilty ones, might be made righteous with his righteousness. Though we are 100% responsible, Jesus takes 100% of the blame upon himself so that we might be reconciled in relationship to God. This is the very heart of the gospel. This is what it's all about. Christians down through the centuries have called this the wonderful exchange, the amazing exchange, the divine exchange. And it is at the heart, not only of the cross, it's at the heart of the incarnation, which we celebrate at Christmas time. Jesus became what we are so that we might become what he is. And when you understand that, when that truth penetrates into your heart, your mind, your life, that's what changes everything. That's what makes you a Christian. Years ago, Martin Luther wrote during the Reformation period to a monk who was struggling struggling with his faith. And Luther explained how to take comfort from this gospel truth. He says, learn to know Christ and him crucified. Learn to sing to him and say, Lord Jesus, you are my righteousness and I am your sin. 
You took on you what was mine, yet set on me what was yours. You became what you were not, so that I might become what I was not. The miracle of the incarnation and the miracle of the cross is that Jesus takes our place so that we might take his. So God is the author of reconciliation. Jesus is the agent of reconciliation. And we, we are the ambassadors of reconciliation. See, on the one hand, God has done everything that is necessary to reconcile us in relationship to himself. There's nothing that we could add, nothing that we could contribute to it. That work is finished. There's nothing for us to achieve, but there is something for us to receive. We have to receive this work for ourselves. And the way in which we receive it is through repentance and faith, turning away from sin and self and putting our full trust and confidence in Jesus for our relationship with God rather than ourselves. And when we do that, that's when everything changes. But not only do we receive this gospel message, now we're called to be ambassadors of it. God makes his appeal through us. He implores others through us to be reconciled to God through Christ. So the same God who worked through Jesus to achieve reconciliation works through us to announce it. That's our task. That's our mission. To announce to our friends, our neighbors, our relatives, our colleagues that we can be reconciled to God in and through Christ. Our relationship can be restored. And here's one very good reason why we should. We considered earlier all the fragmented, broken relationships in our lives and how deeply painful they all are, are they not? And sometimes it seems far beyond our scope or ability to ever repair them. But reconciliation with God vertically leads to reconciliation with others horizontally. And so one very good reason why we should be ambassadors of reconciliation is because if two people can be reconciled in relationship to God, well then subsequently those two people can also experience reconciliation with one another. And in many ways, the only hope we have for our fractured relationships is Jesus. That's the only way those relationships will ever be restored. So this carol shows us that Jesus became our Emmanuel, God with us. He's come to us as one of us through the virgin conception. And then Jesus has reconciled God and sinners through his substitutionary death on the cross. But this carol doesn't just tell us about what Jesus has accomplished for us through his birth and through his death, but also through his resurrection. And that's what the third stanza is all about. And we'll look at this just very briefly. But in the third stanza, Wesley writes, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness. Light and life to all he brings. Risen with healing in his wings. Now here, Wesley is drawing directly from Malachi chapter 4. And there, God speaks through the prophet and makes this promise. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. So there, God is speaking of the ultimate day of the Lord, the day when he will return to restore and renew all things, to make all things new. 
And so you see, it's not as if negatively Jesus merely dies on the cross in order to put away our sins so that we might be forgiven and reconciled, but rather positively Jesus also rises again from the grave, conquering death itself in order to bring healing and wholeness to all those places that are sore and broken in our lives. He's ushering in a whole new world. He's ushering in a new creation. And his resurrection from the grave was the sign that the new creation had already begun. It's breaking into this old world even now, which means that we can experience the new creation in and through Christ in this moment. And that's what Paul talks about at the very beginning of this passage. In verse 17, he gets so excited about this that he doesn't even write a complete sentence. And again, this doesn't come through in the English translation, but in the Greek, there's no subject, there's no verb. He just says, if anyone is in Christ, new creation, if you are united to Jesus by faith, then what is true of him becomes true of you. And that means that if he is the firstborn of the new creation, then now you are a new creation in him too. The old has gone. Behold, the new has come. We haven't seen the entirety of what that new will entail, but it's already begun. The eternal life that God promises begins now and lasts forever, and we get to experience it. We get to taste it here in this moment, if we only would. See, the problem with sin is that it cuts us off from God and leads to spiritual death, but Jesus not only reconciles us to God, but offers us new life through his resurrection. And yes, in this life, it's true that we still die a physical death. But Jesus, through his resurrection, has defeated death. He has conquered death itself, which means that though we may die, he has transformed the, the stone wall, the brick wall of death into a doorway that leads to new life. The death that we experience now in Christ is merely a form of sleep from which one day we will rise when he calls us by name. And therefore, death doesn't get the last word. In the words of the second century theologian Irenaeus, Jesus has accomplished the undoing of death. And therefore, it is not something of which we should ever be afraid. So one day, we know that we will rise with him and enter into a whole new world that he has prepared for us. And that's why Wesley concludes the carol by saying, Mild he lays his glory by, born that man no more may die, born to raise the sons of earth, born to give them second birth. Now I told you at the outset that this carol contains the whole gospel, and now you see why. It doesn't just highlight Jesus' birth. No, it tells us everything that Jesus has accomplished through his birth, through his death, and his resurrection. It's all right there. And that's why when we sing this carol, we should think not only of Christmas, but of everything that Jesus has accomplished for us. Through his birth, Jesus is Emmanuel, God with us. God has come to us as one of us in order to rescue us because he loves us. And through his death, Jesus reconciles us in relationship to God. He became sin with our sins so that we might become righteous with his righteousness so that our relationship might be restored. And through his resurrection, Jesus heals and restores us. He makes all things new because he has risen with healing 
in his wings. Do you see what he's done for us? It's all signed, sealed, and delivered. He's accomplished it all. Jesus has done everything that is necessary in order to bring us back to God and to make us whole. And so as we conclude, I want to ask, well, what do all these various aspects of, of Jesus' life, his birth, his death, his resurrection, what do all these various aspects of Jesus' identity and his mission have in common? What do they all have in common? And the answer is easy. It's grace. What they all have in common is grace. Everything that Jesus has accomplished for us through his birth, his death, and his resurrection is a gift. It's not something that we could ever achieve for ourselves. We could only receive it. We couldn't bring Jesus into the world as one of us. We couldn't reconcile our relationship with God. We couldn't conquer the grave. Everything that he has done is a gift of his grace. Consider just the virgin birth. The fact that God causes himself to be born within Mary's womb without Joseph's cooperation signifies something vitally important to salvation. And what that is is that God's work in our lives is completely one-sided. Everything is the result of God's initiative. Just as God causes himself to be born within the virgin's womb and Joseph had nothing to do with it. So everything that he has accomplished for us is a gift of his grace. We have absolutely nothing to do with it. We cannot achieve it. We can only receive it. And the way in which we receive it is through faith. And faith is simply empty hands which receives what God gives. We've got nothing to add, nothing to contribute, nothing to offer, nothing to give. All we have are empty hands that receive what God gives, and what God gives us ultimately is himself. God takes the initiative to be born among us. God takes the initiative to reconcile us, and God takes the initiative to raise us to new life. So you see, the movement between God and human beings it only runs in one direction, down. We can't climb our way up to God. We, we can't earn our way up into God's good graces. The only way that we can know him is if God comes down to us. And by his grace, he does. So now receive what he's done for you. This Christmas, hark, listen, pay attention to what the angels sing until that song becomes your own. Be reconciled to God and then become an ambassador of reconciliation by sharing it with others. Let me pray for us. Father, we thank you that the full power of the gospel is contained within these carols we love to sing. Help us to see afresh all that Jesus has accomplished for us through his birth, through his death, and through his resurrection. And help us to see anew that all of this is a gift that we could never win, we could never achieve, we could only receive. So help us to receive this, the greatest of all gifts at Christmas time, by putting our trust in Jesus rather than ourselves, 
so that we might know you as our Emmanuel, so that we might be reconciled in relationship to God, so that we might experience the healing and the wholeness that only you can bring because you have risen with, he- with healing in your wings. Help us to receive all these things and then be- to become ambassadors of your work of reconciliation in the world, we pray in the strong and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.